Hi everyone and welcome to the News Agent Podcast. I'm Susie Lysett, Content Manager at Goodlord. Today's episode is a recording of a webinar, our first official lettings legislation update of the year. Uh, we have touched on legislation in some of our previous webinars, but this is a deep dive into a few key topics. In the session, Ollie Sherlock, Goodlord's Director of Insurance, was joined by Robert Bolwell, Senior Partner at Dutton Gregory, to talk through the Scottish rent freeze, short-term let rules, trends around tenants on benefits and much more. So without any further ado, on with the podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this morning's Good Lord webinar. I uh, have the pleasure of being joined uh, shortly by Robert Bolwell, uh, Senior Partner at Dutton Gregory. My name is Ollie Sherlock. I'm Director of Insurance here at Good Lord. Um, I'm going to help you guide through today's webinar in which we're focusing on lettings legislation. Um, we'll have an update from Robert um, across a plethora of um, sort of changes um, and potential um, challenges that legislative changes is throwing at us as an industry. Um, so very keen to sort of go through Robert's thoughts on a number of those. Um, for those of you who don't know who Good Lord is, most of our webinars aren't actually about Good Lord. They're about the, the, the market. They're about the, the industry as a whole. But for those of you who don't know who Good Lord are, um, we're a pre-tenancy um, uh, platform. We expedite and streamline your entire pre-tenancy process, um, everything from AST creation to um, payments, um, to rent collection, um, to rent protection insurance. We cover the entire journey. Um, and we support over two and a half thousand letting agents across the UK um, and ensuring they have the best possible rental experience to promote to their landlords and to their tenants. If you want to understand more about what Good Lord do, you can visit our website at goodlord.co. That is enough about Good Lord. Um, like I say, that is not the purpose of today's uh, today's webinar. We want to understand um, what legislative changes are coming down the tracks. Um, there's been quite a lot going on um, in, across different borders in both Wales and Scotland, which we're going to cover today as well. Um, and as I said earlier, it's a pleasure to be joined by Robert. Um, are you there this morning, Robert? Very well. Good morning, Ollie. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, um, agents. Good morning, everybody out there. And yeah, welcome to this, this latest webinar. It's a, a real mixture of stuff we're going to talk about today, but I want to encourage you to, you know, use the, the facilities to raise questions as we go through. Ollie will put those questions to me or say something in maybe, but there's a whole plethora. So I am over to you. Happy to start. Um, just what we do, Robert, I mean, I, I can't believe there's many industry that don't know who Robert Bolwell is. Um, uh, you're, you're a pretty active member of the, of the sector, but it might be worth just giving us a, just a 30 seconds intro to, to your experiences and what your role is at uh, Dutton Gregory. 30 seconds. Well, I guess I'm head of the landlord term team here at Dutton Gregory. We're a firm of lawyers based in Hampshire, although to be honest, these days it doesn't matter where you are, you can do stuff right the way across the country. And we set up a bespoke landlord term team really back in the the early 90s on the back of something called the Housing Act of 2008, which like, seems like an, another another world ago. But um, no, we've got about 15 staff. I guess our, our big claim to fame at the moment is that we provide the telephone helpline services for Arla members. And I know there's a lot of overlap between what Good Lord does and the support you get from Arla and vice versa. So I hope many of your um, viewers say people take part in this webinar will already have access to the Arla helpline service that we provide. Um, we'll probably tell you how fantastic it is, but we're here to, to answer questions from Arla members on anything from routine to the esoteric. But we provide that, that, that vital support, that reassurance very often for agents taking matters forward. And, and what a time to be, to, to be doing that because there's been substantial change and I think agents and landlords alike um, are, are um, maybe as confused as the rest of us at times because... Um, it's quite a hard market to navigate and quite hard to know that, you know, one, are you doing the right things? But also um, with such change in the air, then, you know, what agents want you to be true, maybe, maybe is no longer true. So a really valuable service to offer, especially at the moment. Yeah, I have to say, what, what always amazes me about our industry is you can take a guy from or a girl from the sales department of a firm, take them from sales and put them into lettings, and they really don't know what's hit them. You know, sales, legislation doesn't really change much on the sales side. OK, we've got training standards, we've got a guy called James Monroe changing things on disclosure regulations. But when you go from sales to lettings, all of a sudden your colleagues realise that lettings is far more complicated now than it's ever been in the past. The amount of stuff you need to know just to rent out a property, you know, average AST and not fall further regulations is, is absolutely phenomenal. And how 
agents survive without services like, like Google or giving them information without proxy mark, I really don't know. They're operating in a vacuum and that can be very, very expensive. But we can talk about PI insurance later on. But no, I think, you know, people like Good Law, people like Property Mark, you know, National Landlord Associate, they all provide essential information services and that's what we're doing at the same time. Well, let, let's get it. Let's get into them because today we're here to try and um, sort of uh, highlight some of the um, some of the sort of um, things coming down the tracks. It were we're going to start off with a, a brief update on the renters' reform bill. There's been a lot of noise about the reform bill um, uh, in terms of from the market. Maybe less noise from Mr. Gove in the last few weeks, which um, you know we're looking for some kind of direction as to what's going to happen here and when. So we're going to cover that today. Um, we're going to look up north of the border because. Um, uh, it was once true, I think, in, in lettings, especially from a market perspective, that what happens in London has a ripple effect outwards. Um, actually, I think it's, 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 it's from a legislative perspective, more true to say that what's happening in Scotland is going to have a rip, ripple effect downwards. And we're going to cover that uh, and what, and what sort of the Scottish sort of changes are looking like and also what, what we can take from that um, to inform us of changes in England um, as well. And also looking um, at, at Scotland, at Wales briefly as well. We're going to cover new short-term lets. Um, there's been a lot, a lot of questions around um, the processes here, but also some of the changes that are coming down the tracks. Um, obviously, with some of the reform bill changes, um, there were concerns around short-term lets uh, becoming more and more frequent. So we can cover that as well. Um, and lastly, we're going to cover off benefit applicants and discrimination uh, trends. Um, Robert has a very, very interesting case study, for want of a better better phrase, that he's working on at the moment that I think once he shares this with you, um, we'll, we'll put you on high alert for watching out for certain emails, but also um, uh, reads a bit like a thriller. Um, it's quite an interesting, interesting case. So we're going to cover that and he's going to share that experience with you, um, which I, I think may prompt uh, maybe, maybe a few questions. Um, as I've said, the live Q&A is on throughout. So please do put your questions to us um, throughout the session. Um, uh, we've already got a question actually. It says, can you confirm the best number to contact De- uh, Dustin Gregory on? We're going to come to that uh, in, in one of the slides actually. We, we can provide that number uh, later in, in the webinar. Um, so thank you for that question. Uh, you didn't leave your name, but good morning to whoever you are. Uh, if you do put a question on the Q&A, please try and leave your name. It's nice to know who we're speaking to. Um, let's get into it. Um, Robert, Renters Reform Bill has been on the agenda for what the best part of four years now, uh, nearly. Um, we last saw a white paper coming out of the government um, four, four or five weeks ago. We saw um, uh, uh, the reaction to the call of, a call of evidence uh, from a group of MPs. Um, it doesn't feel, though, we're much further forward with knowing when this thing's actually going to hit. So I'm going to almost start in reverse of this slide and start with timing first. Um, talk me through your thoughts of when when we think that this kind of change is going to actually come in, 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 into force. Well, you're absolutely right, Ollie. Things are a little bit uncertain. I mean, the Queen, God rest her soul, she first mentioned this idea of scrapping Section 21 notices in the Queen's speech way back in 2019. And you're right, that was that was four years ago. Um, obviously, we had the pandemic, which put timings completely out the window. But then last summer, we had this long-awaited white paper. It's all part of the Michael Goes levelling up agenda. And he came up with, you know, lots of really great ideas, according to some people, and lots of really pretty awful ideas, according to some of us. Now, since then, he hasn't given that many public interviews, specifically on the Renters Reform Bill. When he appeared on the Today programme right at the end of last year, he was asked about timing, because when the white paper was published, the idea was we'd get the bill within a year. So by June, July 23, we would get the bill. Then something was said by the relevant ministry department, which says the bill wouldn't be here until September of 23. And then on the Today programme at the end of last year, he said it would be the end of the calendar year, 2023. So we don't really know which of those dates it's going to be. But if we take it at the end of 2023, I would have severe doubts as to when we'll see this on the statute book before the election. Because just to explain, um, at the moment, we have to have an election under current legislation. I think it's by the end of the second week of January 2025. Now, a bill like this is not going to go through in a couple of weeks. It'll probably take the best part of the year to go from being a bill in front of Parliament, from the House of Commons, House of Lords, House of Commons, House of Lords. It's going to take the best part of the year. So think about the timeline. If we do get this bill by September of this year, out on 12 months, we could see legislation in September of 24. Okay, follow my logic. Now, in this country, 
the legislation comes into effect on one of two dates, either the 1st of October every year or the 1st of April. Now, if we do get a bill becoming an Act of Parliament in September of 24, it probably won't be implemented on the 1st of October 24. It can be the 1st of April 25. And that's absolutely fine. But if that bill is interrupted by a general election and say we have a Labour government return, which is you know, a distinct possibility at the moment, if that legislation that process is interrupted, the bill might completely fail in which case we could be looking at what Labour might do if they form the next government sometime in 25. So at the moment, we just don't know. If you want me to bet, if Michael Gove doesn't give us the bill until the end of 23, I don't think it'll go through with this government in power. It might have to await the general election, and then all bets are off. Mm. Um, one thing Michael Gove has said quite categorically in every interview he's given is that there won't be any rent control measures in his bill. What he wants to do is limit the ability of landlords to increase rent on an existing tenancy. I mean, at the moment, if you want to increase the rent on an existing tenancy, there are a couple of ways of doing it. Obviously, you can have an agreement with the tenants to increase the rent to whatever you agree, or you can rely on a rent increase clause actually in the body of your agreement, or if all else fails, you've got this thing called a Section 13 notice. Now, under the 88 Act, 1988 Act, you can increase the rent under that notice once a year. Michael Gove wants to change that, so you can only increase the rent once every two years. But there's nothing he said to date which would mean, no, there will be total rent controls, you know, caps and all the rest of it, nothing at all. But of course, if this bill doesn't go through under the current government, and we do have a change of colour in our ruling party after a general election, I don't know what the Labour um, government would do with a revamped or reformed renters bill um, in 2025. So the main, we just don't know. I would like to think that if everyone pulls their fingers out, we might get a bill by September, which means we're back on track to get it through for September 24 before an election, which means, yes, we could have legislation 1st of April 2025. But to be honest, Ollie, you know, nobody really knows. And Michael Gove is not being drawn on this at all, I'm afraid. So that's that's the timing. And the um, in terms of the, the change of government, Andy, I think the, um, the, the crossover is an interesting one. Um, Lisa Nandy um, was very clear about a month ago that in the first 100 days of a Labour government, they've made some really um, keen pledges on how they're going to solve, uh, as they see, see it, the, the problems in the PRS, um, including um, extended notice periods, for example, up to four months. Um, it's very. I would certainly advise everyone to, to go and look as to what Labour has said around um, their, their, their sort of um, their you know, suggestions of how they're going to answer some of these problems. Um, because, like you say, Robert, if the timeline goes in that manner, that becomes extremely important as to where we're going to end up from a reform perspective. Um, and uh, you know, my general feeling on this, it, it's unfortunate because the whole point of reform was trying to make the, the PRS a better, a better place to live, as it were, a better place for landlords, a better place for tenants. And you know, you can you can agree or disagree on whether the virtues of the white paper do that. Um, I think ultimately, you know, this state of flux that we're in is just unhelpful for everybody concerned um, and provides that lack of certainty. That's never going to be a good thing um, in terms of making sure that letting agents and landlords know how to act and how to act responsibly. But there are certain elements of the of the bill that maybe haven't got as much airtime as others. Um, and you'll see that the, the idea of Section 21 being abolished isn't on this slide. I think we've maybe talked that to death. Um, and uh, I don't think it needs any more airtime than it's already had. Um, I would hasten to add, though, I think one of the biggest changes that hasn't had uh, the relative airtime that it deserves is the fact that we're going to go into a world of periodic tenancies. Um, so just talk us through what the suggestion there is, just to remind the, the viewers, because there's there's two stages to those changes are uh, on there. There's initial twelve month period and then a twelve month period. I think thereafter. Yeah, if you if you think about it logically, if you are getting rid of no fault evictions, if you're getting rid of the whole Section Twenty One concept, and every political party has signed up that idea, um, if you can't get rid of a tenant at the end of a fixed term tenancy, why have a fixed term tenancy? In the first place. So it's fairly radical thinking. What's been suggested is that from day one, you sign up a tenancy on, say, the 1st of January, and your tenancy will be a rolling periodic tenancy. And the period will be determined by the interval at which rent is paid. So if you think about it, at the moment, we have fixed term tenancies, 
And at the end of that fixed-term tenancy, you go on to a rolling periodic tenancy. In other words, it goes from month to month to month until you serve your Section 21 or whatever. Now, under the new proposals, that's effectively what you're going to have in the future. No fixed term. It'll be a rolling periodic tenancy from month to month to month until. Now, it's until you want to get the property back to sell it or until you want to get the property back to put a close family member in the property or until the tenant decides they want to go, or until there's some substantial breach and you can repossess the property under the normal Section 8 procedure. So that's the proposal going forward. Now, there are a few quirks in this. Number one, if you're an agent who charges your landlord commission at the very start of a tenancy for the whole of the fixed term, and I have to say, I know there are a lot of agents, especially in London, that do this, You sign up a 12-month tenancy on the 1st of January, poor old landlord gets a bill for the commission for the whole 12 months. That's going to have to change. You're not going to find a landlord who's going to be happy to pay you 12 months commission when he hasn't got a fixed-term tenancy. You know, in two months' time, tenants could vote with their feet, give you notice and move out. So that billing model, that that cash flow model, is going to have to change if this is something that your agency does. The other slightly weird thing about the um, the proposal in the white paper was that the fixed-term tenancies would apply if you were a student in purpose-built student accommodation. Yeah. In other words, you know your student's going to be well in the academic year, so again, they get a fixed-term tenancy, they move out to the end. Well, it was pointed out by a, a crossbench committee that a lot of students might live in purpose-built student accommodation in year one at university, but in years two and three, where are they? They're in the private rented sector. So when this was looked at last month by by a committee, they did suggest to Microgrove that that whole area needs to be looked at again and whether we should perhaps retain some sort of Section 21 equivalent to make sure that we can get student accommodation back, whether it's a PRS or purpose-built accommodation, we can get that accommodation back at the end of the academic year. I mean, if we don't have some changes to Michael Goh's original ideas, you're going to have all sorts of problems trying to get a property back when one student moves out or one of them is no longer a student. So that's going to be looked at. And we're waiting at the moment for Michael Goh's ministry to come up with some new ideas on that. But the big thing, yes, ending fixed-term tenancies. That one, I think, passed the mail on Sunday by. They were just fixating on your, your Section 21 issue. But no, there are lots of things coming. And um, with with that and with those other things in mind, we've got a few questions coming in already. So um, thank you for those. Um, we've got a question from Beth. Good morning, Beth. Um, Beth says we normally do a lease renewal and then discuss the re- and then discuss the rent increase. Um, is this not the right process? Um, looking forwards, um, uh, Robert, that process is is going to need to change, right? Because they're going to be confined by uh, the Section Thirteen process. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's a complete double whammy. I mean, number one, there will be no renegotiation of the lease because the lease or the tenancy continues. It continues month to month to month. But number two, how much income do agents get from negotiating those lease renewals? Now, Mm -hmm. if you can't force a tenant to sign a new lease because it's rolling on anyway, that could be another income stream which is going to be compromised. Now, you can obviously agree a rent increase midway through a tenancy, or more importantly, you have a clause built into your tenancy agreement to give you a rent increase mechanism. Now, and I'm trying to plug ARLA, but I mean, if your members out there are also members of ARLA, they know they've got access to the ARLA tenancy agreement, and there's a clause in there. And I suspect if we have a look at the Goodyard tenancy agreement, yes, there are options already built into the Goodlord AST to have automatic rent increases. And if you've got that in your tenancy already, that takes priority over the one called Section 13 procedure. Now, whether Michael Gove implements his threat to limit rent increase to one increase every two years, we'll have to wait and see. But at the moment, if you have got a rent increase clause that says it's 10% increase every year or every six months at the moment, that's what you go for. But in the future, it's going to be a double whammy. There will be no automatic end to a tenancy. So there's no incentive for a tenant to sign a new agreement. And if you're not renegotiating a new agreement, that's going to hit your income stream. Um questions are coming thick and fast and I'm, I'm, I'm going to cover uh, as many of these now if we can whilst we're on this slide um uh Ron K good morning Ron K says um L asks even is there a, uh, is there a certain percentage the landlord can increase the rent to please 
where is your colour coming from? Now, if it's England, at the moment, no. Um, not at all. But what you've got to understand is that every AST, every short, short-term tenancy, is subject to the oversight of the first-tier tribunal. We used to call it a rent committee. And you cannot increase your um, tenancy rent above the market value in England. So in theory, if you try to increase the rent above a certain figure, whether or not you're relying on the Section 13 procedure or otherwise, yes, your tenant could, if they know their rights, and it's a very big if, I'm afraid, they could actually take the landlord to the first-tier tribunal, and the tribunal could say, no, we think, looking at comparables, the appropriate rent for this property is X, Y, Z. So in theory, you can increase it, but you've always got that first-tier tribunal overarching jurisdiction. Now, we're going to talk about Scotland in a bit. Scotland has reacted to the um, cost of living uh, crisis, want to call it that, by capping the amount you can increase the rent by in Scotland on an existing tenancy. But I think we'll come to that in a moment, Ollie. Indeed. Um, we have another uh, point uh, made from the, who hasn't left the name. Um, the government appears to have forgotten about Roper. Uh, is there any further information on whether or not this is even going to happen? No, we, we, we just don't know. I mean, the weird thing about the white paper, I can't remember how many pages, it's literally hundreds of pages long, and a lot of it was all to do with levelling up. The bit which we were concerned about, I think it's only about 80 odd pages, so there's been more put in print since then than we actually saw last summer when the white paper came out. Now, one of the problems we have, and it's something I keep going on about, is... The number of housing ministers we've had over the last 20 years is just phenomenal. I think last year alone, we had something like six different housing ministers. I think some of have had 20 since the year 2000. I mean, can you imagine if we change the CEO of Good Lord every few months? I mean, planning for the future would be very, very difficult. Mm. You know, and again, contrast that with Scotland, where they seem to have a, a far more stable number of people, you know, in their ministry equivalent up there. Um, and we've got a few sort of, um, I think, points more than questions, maybe. Chris, good morning, Chris, um, says getting rid of fixed uh, fixed terms is snake oil, as it won't change how you can actually evict a tenant. Truth be told, the government don't want private landlords to be able to evict tenants. Um, I, I can somewhat see how you've got to that point, Chris, given the, the amount of barriers that feel like are being put down. Um, Alexis, good morning, Alexis, makes another point, and this is quite a personal one, actually. Um, my tenants are worried about the end of fixed terms. They prefer the security of knowing that they're, they're, they're there for at least a year plus, um, which I can sympathise with, especially in a market where stock um, is so short and supply and demand is so high actually having the 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 security there may well be beneficial so um i can understand their point there alexis and and one that the ultimately i suppose doesn't change too much the periodic um they have a level of they, they have a level of control um but knowing that you've got a contract for one or two years for example i get um we've got a, a question from lou fletcher good morning lou um how did the uh, how does the concept of product tenancies give tenants any security in respect of landlords who choose to sell? Uh, Robert, presumably landlords will not be able to seek possession to sell within 12 months of the start of the tenancy. Yeah, where it's six months or 12 months, we don't know. Wait to see the bill. But eventually, um, yes, at some date, you'll be able to serve the equivalent of a Section 21. It'd be a Section 8 notice, but two months. Um, and yes, at the end of that period, if the tenant is still there and the landlord is selling, yeah, he can he can go to court and get a court order. Now, though we haven't seen it yet, there's going to be all sorts of anti-avoidance measures built in. So whether you can serve that notice at six months or 12 months, we don't know. It's probably going to be 12 months. At the moment, it looks like it's going to be a two-month notice. But of course, at least one committee has said, no, it should be longer than that. You should give your tenants at least six months notice before you go to court. And then, of course, what happens in that situation where the landlord changes his mind he gets the property back on a monday and on tuesday he changes his mind and doesn't put it on the market so there's going to be all sorts of anti-avoidance legislation i mean it's going to be it's going to be fairly complicated but there's got mm. to be a way to make sure that landlords don't put in spurious and um, selling claims get a possession order and then change their mind but you know the detail is going to be um to come and and just before we move on to the next slide lisa's come back to your point around the charging mechanism i i think if you're sat on this webinar as a letting agent and you haven't haven't started to think how the um, the move to periodic is going to affect the, the, the your cash flow, the mechanism which you sort of um, purvey your your proposition out to and out to your landlords, you need to start thinking about it now. And we're certainly here to help you with that because there are going to be ways that you can have parity, if not arguably improve um, your revenue um, per, per per let and deliver different levels of service to your landlords that actually add more value in the new world, but 
any lack of action now, I think, will be troublesome. Um, uh, you know, moving, moving forwards. And Lisa asks um, that the rent collection and management fee can be charged monthly. How are we going to charge let only fees um, if we can't charge up front? I think Lisa's Robert point, Robert's point isn't that you can't charge up front. Um, you can indeed. And for let only, I think that would still hold hold, hold, hold true. Um, but the point Robert was making was that actually, if you're asking a landlord to buy into, um, say, paying 12 months worth of management fee up front when the landlord has no certainty that they're going to have a tenant for 12 months, that's going to be a pretty hard sell, maybe. Um, and I think that's a very, very key, key point to, to recognise, depending what your charging model is at the moment. But um, if you want more uh, information around how the, the, the legislation is going to change, potentially how your business model works, we are going to be running different sessions here at Goodlord on that. Um, and we have some... Uh, mechanisms and tools that you could use to try and change that ahead of time so um, it doesn't feel as um, as troublesome um, as and when the changes come in. Um, let's move on. I'm conscious of time um, and we, we're on for the first slide. Um, we have got more questions. And I, I will come to some of those um, as, as we move forward. Thank you so much for posting those. Um, one final point uh, on the Renters Reform Bill. Um, a lot of the new legislative changes are going to require more interaction from a court if and when um, there's cases that, that need to be processed um, with the abolishment of Section 21. There's cases that need to be processed with the abolishment of Section 21. So I'm getting um, some feedback here. Um, what are the fee? What are the what are the government actually doing around the courts and the bandwidth? Um, what are the, the fee? Court, what are the what are the government actually doing around the courts and the bandwidth of the court government? Okay, well, the idea of using a Section 21 to get rid of a tenant at the moment, and I use the term politely, get rid of a tenant, is that you have some certainty. If you've served the right bits of paper, you're not going to get into an argument over disrepair, rent rates, you simply get the property back. So a lot of landlords who are really wanting a property back because the tenant's done something wrong, use the Section 21 process. It's quick, it's relatively cheap, et cetera, et cetera. So the government are actually alive to this, and they're saying, look, we appreciate that we are going to have to revamp the whole theme of the back game tenants out of a property. So there will be new Section 8 grounds, and there will be um, help with the court service to make sure things happen a little bit quicker than they perhaps do at the moment. The one irony, of course, Ollie, is... Do you want to guess who the housing minister, sorry, who the justice minister was 10 years ago who started slashing court budgets? I gave the game away, didn't I? Uh, I imagine it's the very same person who's now in charge of trying to level up the entire process, Mr. Gove. It is. I mean, this is like irony here. You know, 10 years ago, he was slashing budgets, closing courts left, right and centre. Now he's had to admit that, yes, we need more resource in the courts. Now, this is where we have an interesting parallel with Scotland. Scotland got the same problem that we had five or six years ago. So what did they do? They introduced a specialist housing court. And if you have members north of the border, they will tell you the housing court there works really well. It's streamlined. It's fast. You don't necessarily have judges making decisions. You'll have the experienced landlord term practitioners, you know, lawyers who may not be a judge. And it works really well. And one of the committees that looked at the white paper said, look, we should follow the example of Scotland. We should do what they have done. Whether or not the Minister of Justice and Michael Gove in his new job say, yes, we're going to follow Scotland, we simply don't know. One problem we do have here, of course, is, is money. There is just no money to pay for an extra court service. And what we wouldn't want to do is set up a court service, but take money out of the existing courts for the housing court, you know, robbing people to pay poor. But that would be great if we could do it. So, Devils in detail, watch this space. But I would love a specialist housing course. I really would. Agreed. Um, and especially from our so my decision in managing the rent protection book, it's having a uh, consistent and robust, efficient court process is in everybody's interest, um, including tenants, uh, frankly, um, to expedite that process. Um, you talk about Scotland there. Let's move on to the next slide, because um, ultimately, uh, as we said at the top of the call, um, Scotland can act as... Uh, as, as some level of precursor as to what we're going to experience and and, and the effects of that. Um, just talk us through sort of what's happened in Scotland and what restrictions they've put in place, and because they have taken further action from a cost of living perspective alongside um, you know previous legislative changes that were out of kilter with what England especially were, uh, have been doing. So talk us through the changes in Scotland. Yeah. Um, now all this is. Um, I've got a word of health warning here because. Property market, most of you know, they have challenged 
the Scottish government over the legislation is to reduce freezing freezing rent. So there could well be a, a big development coming in a couple of months' time, but um, that's that's on the back burner at the moment. But their legislation is being challenged. But at the moment, what they did, and they did it very quickly, it's last last year, they reacted at the cost of living increase by saying, okay, fine, you cannot landlords increase existing rents. No restriction on rents for new properties that are empty, that you put in a new tenant in, say, but if you've an existing tenant and you want to increase the rent, it's a complete no-no. Now, they looked at everything over the course of the last few months, and we have some very important changes coming on the 1st of April. So as from the 1st of April, landlords in Scotland will be able to increase rent. They have to serve the appropriate notice, but their rent increase will be limited to a maximum of 3% of the current rent. But if the landlord himself has got a bit of a cost of living crisis because his mortgage has gone up, his utility bills have gone up, landlords there can actually increase rent to up to 6%, but they've got to go through effectively the, the rent of the Scottish rent service to make sure any increase is approved. So they're limited from the 1st of April, the increases you can see in Scotland. Of course, in England, there is no limit. The limit in England is market rents, effectively, or whatever you say in your tenancy agreement. So Scotland have acted very quickly to protect tenants from big, big rises. Um, what they've also done in Scotland is they've introduced a restriction on evictions. Now, there are all sorts of exceptions, but the general rule is you get a possession order in Scotland because you want your property back, but you can't enforce it for six months or um, until the end of September, whichever is, is the sooner. Now, say so there are exceptions for very high rent arrears cases, you can still get your property back. But the general proposition is Scottish government has acted to try and help people who are renting property at the lower end of the market so we don't get an influx of people from local authorities seeking local authority assistance. But that's what Scotland's done. Um, I have to say England hasn't really done anything to protect um, tenants at the moment, despite the cost of living uh, crisis. Yes, you know, we've got that contribution towards our bills, our utility bills, but England has not done anything specifically to protect our tenants. Again, a bit of a contrast what they do north of the border or don't do south of the border. And one of the challenges here is, uh, I suppose, that the Scottish, um, uh, the action that the Scottish government have taken has, um, on the face of it, um, answered the calls of tenants for support. But in reality, um, the rental market is still a free market. Um, it, it works on supply and demand. It also works on landlord-based uh, costs, which have risen quite dramatically. So um, whilst you might assume, because there's been a cap on rent in Scotland, that would limit the increase in rents in Scotland, actually the opposite is true. What has happened in Scotland and what continues to happen, and under the new changes will still happen, uh, by the sounds of it, is that actually the moment that property comes off the market, i.e. tenant moves out or is evicted uh, through an appropriate means, then when the property returns to market, that could hypothetically go from £1,000 to £2,000 because it's a new tenancy. And actually, we're seeing vast increases in rent in Scotland with, through, that, through that process, aren't we? What you're getting, Ollie, are two markets. You're getting one market which reflects when the property last was vacant. And if it's vacant now, you're going to get a much, much higher rent. And the other market... Tenants who are holding over on old tenancies. So you're going to get this incredible disparity between existing tenants who've been there for a year or so and new tenants who've just moved in. Now, at some stage, you know, logic dictates that that market has got to get back to state of equilibrium. So when these restrictions end, and I have to assume they will be ending at some stage as the government keeps on renewing and renewing the legislation, there is going to be a massive increase in rents for those people who've been there, say, for a couple of years and had the benefit of this legislation from last September. So at the moment, yeah, you're having two different markets in Scotland, which is completely artificial. The only good thing about England, of course, is we've got one market, but you know, we know that rents have gone quite significantly over the last you know, 12 months in England for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I was on a focus group with some of our, our customers uh, last week, and one of those was a, Scottish, a large Scottish agent. Um, and uh, they were very... Um, very clear on the effect of these changes and how that's dramatically led to landlords either already exiting or wanting to exit the market because of the pressures that have been put on them. So um, I think there's there's some good and bad in Scotland. I think your point around the housing courts in Scotland is is, is definitely uh, definitely accurate. Um, I think the the mechanisms in which the Scottish government have taken to try and um, limit um, the effect of the cost of living crisis um, on tenants seems to have somewhat backfired. Now. You would hope that the the government um, look at this and learn from this and, and actually look at the data because um, th that's really what's important. And you know, to your point around the change in government potentially, we know that Labour 
are more pro uh, Red Caps than maybe um, the, the the incumbent government. We know that in London, for example, uh, Sadiq Khan has been very vocal about wanting to, to cap rents in London. Um, I would argue that it does not work. Um, and there's clear evidence it doesn't work. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's going to be very interesting to see how how the timelines cross over. Because if the reform bill doesn't get delivered in the manner that you you, you, you talked through earlier, Robert, uh, and we lead into that new government, then there's going to be some quite big questions posed of a new government. Um, and we should be careful what we wish for, I suppose. Because at the end of the day, all of this reform, I think we all accept, is about is about making a better PRS, a better rental experience for tenants, a better standard of living for tenants. I think we all want that. Um, but uh, not quite convinced that rent caps are, are the way to go about doing that, frankly. Um, looking at Wales, um, Wales is slightly... Sorry, No, I was going to say, all of this one about rent caps and limits, it, it, it hides the essential problem that we have in this country, is that our PRS, by and large, is gone by market forces. And market means supply and demand. Um, in, a, in a situation where we're just not building the appropriate number of homes anymore, there is always going to be this imbalance, which means on one hand, great for landlords, but it's not good for the country. Um, you know, once upon a time, we did have this, this target of 300,000 new properties or new homes being built every single year. Well, you know, that's been scrapped by this government. You know, I think Michael Gove was, I don't think targets are very helpful. Well, of course they're not helpful if you can't get anywhere close to targets. So until we start building more, I mean, I think in the last, I mean, you might know this, I think in the last committee that looked at the white paper, they said there we need at least 90,000 social houses every year. Well, you know, we're not building those. They're learning those in the private sector. So whilst this imbalance continues, yes, it might be great for landlords in the short term, maybe great for our industry because we're all going to have jobs. I think for the country, we need to get close to, if not equilibrium, but certainly building more homes for the growing population. Mm. I, I think the points around targets is 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 quite hilarious, actually. I tried to have this conversation with my CEO to say the targets he said to me are, are just not helpful. Uh, and I, I prefer them to be aspirational. Uh, just the ones that I can't hit were mainly the ones that I had focused on. But it's laughable that we say that... Uh, you know, we remove something that we can't and, and call it. And I think the phraseology was, you know, these are asp- these are now aspirations rather than targets. Um, and, you know, it's easy to, 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 to lay blame at this government. This is successive governments that have failed to hit the housing target that's required to meet the demands uh, the, uh, of the growing population. And the, the fact that the, the social housing objectives are so far behind alongside uh, the rest of the PRS and the rest of the new home building targets really shows and speaks to how those two things have bled into one, one another. And um, the PRS now is holding up and trying to support many different demographics of individuals. Whereas before, 20 years ago, maybe, um, that wasn't the case. There was more clearly defined. So, um, I mean, that's a whole, whole different webinar. But um, I just want to touch on Wales, Robert, because Wales have taken a different view again. Um, they've actually launched new legislation um, and uh, looked to, look to, look to sort of a lengthen notice period, for example, Um What's your view on how well Wales have managed this process of, of reform and what are the early signs um, as to whether that's working or not? Um, at the moment, it's too early to say. I mean, it all kicked in last December, but the lead-in time has been phenomenal. The legislation has been effectively on the books now for about six or seven years, but it kicked in last December. And you know what happens in Wales is you've got to give everybody a new contract, a new tenancy, effectively, though we don't call them tenancy anymore, and you've got this date in May. By the time you've got to sort of get everything in line. I think at the moment, um, I haven't had any feedback to say that landlords are throwing their hands in abject horror. You still have the ability to get rid of a tenant on a no-fault basis. So, you know, I could see a situation where, encouraged by what Wales are doing, but discouraged by what England's doing, if I am living in a border county, I might decide to sell property in England and buy one in Wales. Um, but, you know, again, in many ways, Wales are ahead of the game. They recognise that we do need to get tenants out in certain circumstances. They do effectively have a register of landlords there because you need to register your, you know, the fact that you are a landlord. And they have more regulation for agents. Now, you've got to pass a fairly rudimentary exam before you can be an agent. So, you know, we've got Scotland ahead of us. We've got Wales ahead of us. And I just hope that Michael Gove uses his white paper and the renters reform bill to do a bit of catch up here. You know, personally, I think it's crazy. We've got three different systems, or like four different systems with Northern Ireland in mm. one, you know, very small area. I mean, on the, on the helpline that we run, you know, if we get somebody with a Welsh accent, we have to ask them, are you actually in Wales? And sometimes, we you know, we're giving answers on the basis of an English caller, but they say, oh, no, no, 
the properties in Wales. So we've got to sort of start all over again. So mm. we do have multiple systems in one very small island. But that's that's the evolution. That, that's part of the that, you know the, the problem of the evolution, and that's not going to go away. No, not not at all. Um, and you know, obviously, we've got three three or four different views of what could work and what doesn't work. Actually, so there's there's some merit in in the different things that the different steps have been taken. But um, but for individuals and businesses like like ourselves that service all those areas, it does become somewhat confusing at times, uh, and, uh, and and quite hard to ensure that you're giving you know the accurate uh, advice according to where that property is based. Um, we've got a few questions that have come in uh, through, through this slide. Um, we've got a few points actually. Again, more than questions. Uh, Chris, uh, good morning, Chris. Chris says everything has gone up considerably. Why pick on rents? Um, I I understand that. I think you know when you look at landlords' costs, um, especially from an interest rate perspective, um, you know some landlords' uh, base costs have been hugely increased quite quite quickly, and that that is a struggle to pass that on. So I think you know at the end of the day, we're all in you know all under this the same umbrella when it comes to sort of inflationary um, um, uh, disadvantages and interest rate increases. You know that, that that's part of the crisis that we're in. Um, Chris also says that the government needs to look in the mirror for the housing situation. Um, I think we we would broadly agree from a home building perspective that there's an answer to be um, sort of put, put to their door there. Um, uh, Anthony asks, regarding rent increases, if the government freezes rent, the market rent base for rent tribunal cases could be frozen for 100 years. Um, I'm unsure whether that would what he means by that, uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, Robert. Um, yeah, if the government wants to freeze rents, they've got to pass, you know, fairly sweeping legislation because at the moment it's quite clear you can increase the rent to a market rent. Now you'd have to change that legislation, you know, for on, on day one. And of course, Scotland did by reducing a new act, new, new, new piece of legislation. Um, there would be an awful lot of pushback to that, and I, I am not sure with an election coming that the government wants to cook or that sort of controversy. It's something that a new government under you know a different colour might want to look at, but it would have long-term implications, I agree, because once you've got that ban in place, when would you reverse it? I mean, what they're doing in Scotland, of course, is every six months they're reviewing it. So it could well be that mm. said about Scotland will be completely different. December, we, we just don't know. I think a temporary rent freeze or temporary limit on what you can do to increase the rent in Scotland, if you're going to do anything at all, was the way to go. I would be very disappointed from the market sector um, if they had a permanent ban on rent increase or whatever. And I, I don't think they could because the PRS is now so important. You know, yeah. if landlords suddenly decide we're exiting, where are people going to live? Um, and, you know, if we suddenly dump, you know, a couple of hundred thousand properties on the, on the market every month or so, what's that going to do to house prices? And, you know, believe it or not, a lot of house owners are people who vote for the Tory party. So I think the government have got lots of juggling to do, but I don't think they'll introduce a complete ban on rent increase. I really don't. I may be wrong, but no. I don't think so. I would, I would be amazed. Um, I think that, yeah. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of change actually. So neither of us should put our name to saying never. Um, uh, that's probably not wise. Uh, Sonika asks, um, what is the minimum amount of notice given to a tenant for rent increases? Um, I presume she she's maybe referring to moving forwards in 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 the world of the suggested reform, maybe. Well, we, we don't know at the moment. It's one period or one month or whatever your tenancy agreement says. So it's quite clear. Um, in the future, in the white paper, they're suggesting at least two months' notice. So if you like, you're doubling the, the length of time the tenant has got to sort of come up with the extra money. Whether that's going to be in the final bill, we just don't know. But at the moment, it's one month. In the future, it may be two. What we see in the bill will be what it will be. Okay, um, let's move on. Um, Sarah, if you go to the next slide, please. So, oh, yeah, I just want to really run through this. Um, there's been a bit of a problem over the last few years in different parts of the country with the number of homes that are available for long-term let just shrinking. Um, I'll give you an example. I think I saw a figure once which said over the last five years, the number of properties, say Cornwall, that are available for long-term let for homes has dropped by 70%. That's a phenomenal number. And if you go to Scotland, where, yes, they lost the equivalent of a Section 21 notice back in 2017, some landlords have exited the market. But more recently, since the pandemic, a lot of landlords say, look, 
I don't want to rent my property as a home to someone to live in. I want it on the hybrid market, Airbnb, whatever it may be. So I know at the beginning of the academic year, um, Glasgow and Edinburgh, their universities have phenomenal problems trying to get second and third year students into private accommodation because a lot of them have been converted, holiday homes, Airbnb. So governments um, both north and south of the border have got to consider what can we do to perhaps not stop this trend, but to make it less attractive for landlords to take properties away from the PRS and put them into what I call the holiday market. Short term, that's what you want to call them. Now, in Scotland, they've come up with two, I think, pretty good ideas. Number one, they've said in Scotland, if a local authority thinks they've got a particular problem losing properties from the PRS, they can change their own planning regulations. In other words, you could have a special edict in your borough in Scotland saying if you want to take this property out of the PRS system, and put into holiday lets, Airbnb, whatever, you need planning permission. And some local authorities, Edinburgh in particular, have gone down that route already. The other thing they're saying in Scotland, if you want to rent out a property and it's not the tenant's home, it's not their principal residence, you need to get a licence. Now, south of the border, we're used to licences for HMOs, for selective licensing. North of the border, it's now licensing for effectively holiday homes, but they don't call them holiday homes. They call them properties that are occupied, usually short term, by people who are not using them as their principal residence. So, yes, effectively holiday homes. So would you believe if you have a wigwam, which you're renting out to a tourist, you need a license for that. If you are one of those very few people that own a lighthouse and you want to rent it out for holiday purposes, you need a license. There are whole lists in the legislation as to the sort of properties that need a license and those that don't. One of those that don't need a license is a bothy, and that's described as a single story building with no utility services at all, no gas, no water, no electricity, and at least 100 metres from a road. So you don't need a licence for that. But there are all sorts of properties, all catalogued in the Scottish legislation to say you will need a licence if you want to go down that particular route. Now, that may be the way to stop people leaving the PRS and going to the short-term or holiday market. We're not that coordinated south of the border. Um, yes, local authorities have the ability to increase council tax in certain circumstances on second homes and the Welsh Assembly are doing great guns there. Um, you know, if you're a second home in, in Wales, you're going to be paying far more tax than you would have done five or six years ago. But what they're saying in England is, well, hang on a moment, we've identified that a lot of people who take their property out of the PRS call it a holiday home, but don't actually put it on the market as a holiday home. Now, you might say, well, why would people do that? And the answer, again, is council tax. If you have a second property, you would normally pay full council tax on that. If you have a holiday home, a holiday let, that technically, believe it or not, is a business. And of course, if you have a business property, you don't pay council tax, you pay business rates. And odds are business rates on a holiday home will be a lot less than the council tax. So we have an awful lot of property, especially down in Cornwall, that have left the PRS. They may be a holiday home, but they're not always rented out as a holiday home. But landlords are trying to mitigate their outgoings by saying, I'm not paying council tax, I'm paying business rates. Well, the new rules on the 1st of April say in that scenario, if you're calling your second or subsequent properties holiday accommodation, it's got to be rented out for at least 70 days in any tax year. And it's got to be available to be rented out for at least 140 days in any tax year. Otherwise, you won't qualify for that business um, allowance you'll be paying the council tax. Now, you know, this all impacts on Airbnb, holiday accommodation, especially in key areas like Devon and Cornwall, where we have a large influx of tourists. But it also emphasises the fact that at the moment we don't have a proper register of what properties people own. Yes, the land registry knows what every owner is of a property, but we don't have a single register. Now, contrast in Scotland, where in Scotland, you know, if, if I'm the Scottish First Minister, I can press a button on my computer, I can get a list of all the landlords in Scotland. In Wales, effectively, we have the same because landlords have got a register. In England, we don't. So a couple of things to bear in mind. Um, they have talked about setting up a register in England and Wales for second home owners. And in the white paper, which we discussed a moment ago, there is talk about bringing in a single ombudsman service that every private landlord must belong to. 
Now, of course, if you're a landlord and you must belong to the service, that effectively is going to be a register of all the landlords in this country, their properties, etc., etc. So again, we're a little bit behind Scotland, we're a little bit behind Wales, because we just don't know what landlords there are out there, what properties they own. So all this is going to be changing over the next year. But certainly from the 1st of April, we do have these new rules on holiday accommodation, what you have to do if you want to qualify for business rates as opposed to council tax on any property you're planning to letting out as a holiday accommodation. And, and, and as part of the reform, the um, government also notes the introduction of a property portal, which essentially I think the idea being this, this will bind all of this together and give a place in which you can submit and, and register um, uh, your properties, etc. That also, I think, will be extremely lenient on the UPRN um, uh, number being introduced as the mainstay for the way everything the way everything's attached to a property. So um, it should be noted that the utilisation of UPRNs is going to be absolutely crucial I think, to the delivery of all of these things. And there's going to be multiple benefits, I think, actually long-term for letting agents and landlords to have essentially a, a property logbook of which you can see all of your uh, all of your things pertaining to that property against them, from insurance claims all the way through to, 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 to tax. Um, so, uh, you know, I expect there to be seismic change here in this area in the next sort of five to ten years. But these things are going to take time, aren't they, in, in terms of actually getting one getting introduced, but also then finding a level that is easy to access, that actually works. And... I suppose the running thing to all of this that we've not covered so far is enforcement. You can have all the legislation in the world that ultimately, if it's not enforced, um, it doesn't really mean much. Um, and there's clearly a question in terms of how well um, that we can enforce legislation in our sector full stop. And, and more, that question becomes more uh, important, I think, as more and more changes are introduced. No, I totally agree. I mean, back in 2016, the government woke up to the fact that local authorities didn't really want to prosecute agents or landlords because it cost the local authority money. Um, what would happen is they'd prosecute an agent, prosecute a landlord, there'd be a massive fine because technically for an offence, fines could be unlimited, but the local authority wouldn't get that fine. It would go to central government. So what's the incentive on the local authority to spend ratepayers' money taking King, you know, you or me or an agent to court. Well, that changed in 2016. Since then, we've had civil penalty notices. So, effectively, if you commit an offence, local authorities got the ability to give you what, what offence is a parking ticket. It's a bit of paper, it's a fine, and you have to pay it. And that can be up to £30,000. Now, you know, whether they are going to increase that limit to give more incentive to local authorities, I don't know. But the great thing about civil penalty notices is the local authority that issues the parking fine gets to keep the money. So when this first um, sort of kicked in, you know, well, five or six years ago, you did find a lot of boroughs, especially in London, employing people to walk up and down high streets, going to agents' offices and saying, have you got your fee chart up on the wall? And if they didn't, it was a £5,000 penalty notice there and then. And, of course, that money went to employ somebody else to do more enforcement, employ somebody else to do more enforcement, and the whole thing grew. Now, London is pretty hot on this. I have to say, out in the, out in the provinces, I don't think local authorities have really woken up to the possibilities yet. But if the government wants to kick off that scheme or increase that, that civil penalty limit from 30000 to, say, 50000 yeah, there, there would be an incentive there for more enforcement. But, uh, but you're right. Local authorities have got so much on their plate at the moment. Very often, housing is at the bottom of the list, you know, as it mm. is sometimes for many governments, I'm afraid. But my personal opinion, that's not Dutton Gregory's opinion, OK? <laughs> um, let's, let, let's move on to our last slide. Um, this is extremely interesting. And um, I think we should start with um, uh, just a sort of um, byline that, you know, we clearly recognise that anybody should have access to a property. And that should be based, and those decisions should be based on affordability. There should be one simple model to assess whether somebody should have a property or not. Um, and, and that's a sort of, um, you know, it's a prerequisite, really, uh, in terms of our view. But um, there's something quite interesting happening around an individual called Natalie Campbell. And, um, Robert, t talk us through what's going on here and some sort of a precedence case as well and how we've got to this point. Because I think, I think our viewers are going to be super interested in what's happening here. Natalie Campbell is a 39-year-old single woman who lives in a rented property in Surrey. Okay, Surrey, south, southeast last time I checked. And over the last couple of years, she's tamed to writing and contacting agents right the way across the country. And what she says is, look, I've seen this property on your portal. I'd like a viewing, please, because I'm relocating to your area. Oh, by the way, I'm a DSS 
benefit applicant. Now, we haven't had the SS since 2001, but we know what she means. She's on benefits. And what she is looking for is an agent who writes back and says, oh, I'm terribly sorry, it's our policy or it's the landlord's policy, we don't take benefit applicants. That's what she is looking for. I personally doubt she's ever had any intention of leaving her accommodation in Surrey, but this is the approach she takes right the way across the country. Now, if you write back and say, I'm sorry, that's our policy, the next thing you will get is a claim for compensation on the grounds of indirect discrimination. Now, let's talk about discrimination. You cannot discriminate against an individual who has got what we call a protected characteristic. So that's your sex, gender, that could be your colour, your creed, whatever. You cannot discriminate against that person. So if I said, for example, no, we are not going to take any applications from tenants who have got one leg or they're black or they're women, that is direct discrimination. And that is 100% completely wrong. Indirect discrimination is a bit more subtle. If your policy just so happens to catch more people who have got one of those protected characteristics, that's what the courts call indirect discrimination. Now, she bases her claim on this case in York about 2000, 2001, I think it's, sorry, 21. Now, what happened in that case is somebody applied to an agent up in York and wanted accommodation, but again, was a benefit applicant. Now, they were turned down because of a blanket policy that an agent operated, quite illegally, but they operated a blanket policy. And the applicant said, look, you've turned me down. I am on benefits. But it so happens, if you look across the country, there are more females on benefit than males. And I think your case is actually a single parent. So there are more single parents who are female on benefit than males. Now, rightly or wrongly, the judge in your case said, well, that's indirect discrimination because it just so happens that your policy does catch more women and gender is a protected characteristic. Therefore, it's indirect discrimination. And in the your case, there was compensation awarded. Now, the weird thing about the your case is, number one, it was at the county court level and one county court decision does not necessarily bind another county court. Two county courts come up with completely different answers. But the other weird thing about the court case is the compensation was actually negotiated between the parties. The judge didn't say what the compensation was. Now, take a step back. If you get a letter from Natalie Campbell and you say, I'm sorry, Natalie won't take benefit, she will write to you and say, ah, indirect discrimination. Here is all the paperwork from the York case. You can see you're wrong. I want £8,300 compensation. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Ollie. I don't know how many times this woman has done this over the last two or three years. What I do know is we've had three cases recently where this modus operandi has been to the fore. Now, we are one firm of lawyers in one part of the country. So if I've had three cases in the last couple of weeks, how many other cases are there out there? So just, now, on, just on this, Robert, how, how is, is she... Sorry, how is she suggesting, given, and you, you mentioned her, her location at the top of the, the point here, how, how can she genuinely prove that she had any real ambition or desire to move into the project? She's not suffered material loss here because she never wanted the property in the first place, surely? No, she can't throw loss, but you put yourself in the position of an agent. You've got all this paperwork coming in. You've got all the notes from your case. And this woman is saying, we're going to take you to court for thousands and thousands of pounds. The alternative is, why don't you give us a payment now? We'll call it quits and go away. And I have to say, a lot of agents will do that. Shelters always got a scale of charges. The last time we had this with a shelter-backed um, tenant, I think sheltered 3,000 pounds. Now, to be honest, if you're being threatened with court case of 10 grand or whatever, and someone says, will take £3,000 anyway, what are you going to do? And mm. a lot of agents will write that cheque for more amount just to get it off their books. Because you think about it, so we can talk about insurance in a moment, but if you have a PI insurance policy, which might cover you on this, ultimately your policy excess is going to be more than what the woman is asking for. So she's very clever. If you do a settlement, she insists that you sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. So in theory, you can't even discuss this 
at your local agent's meeting with other people in your town. You can't let them know what's gone on. So she could be doing this to two or three agents in every street in every part of the country, and we'd never know. So what I'm doing at the moment for one agent up in Nottingham who's been caught, uh, we're fighting a case in the Guildford County Court, and we're saying to the judge, judge, this is ridiculous. Number one, we think it's a fraudulent claim. She's, she's fishing, to use that, that term. Um, and number two, we want it struck out of the grounds of entrapment and public policy. Now, if I go in front of the judge and say, I can prove she's done this two other cases, that's good. But if I can say she's done this in two dozen other cases, that is much, much better. So what I've got on this slide here is my email address and the telephone number for our helpline. And what ideally I'd like, if anybody's watching this, and they have had an experience with Natalie Campbell from a flat in Surrey um, claiming to be a benefit claimant, could they let us know? Now, on the NDA, the non-disclosure bit, um, no non-disclosure agreement can bind, can bind you as an agent if you're seeking legal advice from your solicitor. So if you contact us, you become our client at that point. So the non-disclosure agreement would not be binding in discussions we have with my office. So all I'm saying is, look, if you're out there, if you're an agent and you've come across Natalie Campbell from a flat in Surrey, leaning to rent a property in your area and she's on benefit, can you please get in touch? That's the helpline number. That's my email. And we'll come back to you and we'll have a chat about it. But we, we, we just got to publicize this somehow because mm. discrimination is wrong. It's totally wrong. But this is not the way to solve it. We solve it through education, not through what I call this blackmail. I mean, this is what effectively all it is. People are terrified of going to court. We need to solve it. We need to educate agents out there, but we need to stop the Natalie Campbells. And this is not the first fishing trip that people have had trying to get money out of agents under what I would call false pretenses. But that's what we've got now. Very interesting. Um, and uh, I think interesting the fact she's reporting to be on benefits, but clearly generating thousands of thousands of pounds uh, in benefit through this, this action, which I, I imagine she's not disclosing. Um, so <laughs> I'm not sure it will end very well. If I get a few of people saying, yes, we've paid out eight or nine thousand pounds, my next email will be to the court department of a local benefit office because it, it's not right. I and mean, she is claiming benefit. We don't know if she is. It's your money's money, it's taxpayers' money. And she's conning the industry as well. But anyway, I've said enough. That's my that's my soapbox today, Ollie, I'm afraid. Okay, um, we've got a few, a few questions. I'm conscious we've run over time, so I want to try and um, keep these as, as short as, as we possibly can. Um, I do thank everybody for joining us. Um, uh, uh, I've got one that says, tell, tell Robert Martin 80 is watching. They'll know who I am. We've done 14 cases this year. So I don't know whether he means he's done 14 cases relating to Natalie Cooper. I, if that is the case, then I, I, I would urge you to reach out to Robert. Uh, as quickly as possible, because that's going to be quite yeah. seismic. Star witness. Yeah. Um, I've got a question from, um, we've had this in, where is it? I'm sorry, apologies. Um, John, good morning, John. I manage licensed HMOs with bills included in the rent in England. Can I increase the housemaid's payment every six months if utility bills are increasing? No. Not unless you have a rent increase clause written into your tenancy agreement. If you have, you might get away. If you haven't, then you're relying on a Section 13 note at the end of the fixed term, and you can only do a Section 13 once a year. So, yeah, I mean, I have to say the days of including utilities in the rent are gone. It's just a complete disaster. You know, since Putin marched into, into Ukraine, it's been a complete disaster zone for, for those sort of landlords. Mm. Um, Emma, some of our landlords, good morning, Emma. Some of our landlords say no to students. Um, is this direct or indirect discrimination? They say no due to income. Well, I would probably say you're not taking them because of the affordability issue. It's security, mm. it's affordability. I hate to say whether it is or isn't indirect discrimination. I hope we have roughly 50 50 male and female students in this country. But I'd be very reluctant saying no students because all you're doing is opening a potential Pandora's box with the you know, National Students' Union. Um, and it doesn't take a genius to work out that if they want to try and recruit a few more students for their, their union, yeah, let's have, a, let's have a case in court that gets into the press. So we never say no to a group. We say no on affordability. 
Mm. Um, another point from somebody who's, who's not left a name, but good morning nonetheless. And um, thank you, really informative. That's our pleasure. Uh, two things: uh, will we receive a copy of the recording? You will indeed. This will be sent out um, following the webinar. Uh, and on a different note, the change to the how to rent guide uh, that changes tomorrow will that will will the amended documents be uploaded to Good Lord for the start of the tenancy and for renewals? Do agents using the platform need to do anything? Um, one, yes, the new copy of the rent, how to rent guide will be uploaded. And two, no agents don't need to do anything. Um, I'll take the opportunity to argue that's a very good selling point of Good Lord. Uh, rest assured that we manage all of that for you and you don't need to change anything. The platform will automatically update. Um, we are out of time. We've run over by seven minutes. I appreciate there's a few questions um, that have, have been left over. Hopefully we've covered the majority of them now. Um, thank you so much to the hundreds and hundreds of letting agents and property professionals that have joined this morning. Um, Robert, thank you too. A really, really informative session as that, as that viewer says. And I think um, a plethora of of topics to cover there, um, some of which will become more and more important as the weeks and months go on. So um, hopefully um, we can we can sort of join forces again in, in the coming months as we learn more about the reform bill and hopefully as the government signpost um, where we're heading a bit more, we can come back to this group hopefully and give them a further update as and when we have information. But for now, uh, to everyone that's joined, to Robert, thank you so much for your time. Uh, take care and we'll see you soon.